excuse me, let me turn this back on. All right, let's try that out. Good deal. Our scripture passage for the day is 1 Corinthians. Uh, we'll be reading verses 12 through 20. 1 Corinthians 6, chapter 6, verses 12 through 20. And um, as we prepare to read this passage and discuss the topic, I'm reminded of um, the Peanuts um, special that always comes around around Halloween. It's, a great, it's the great pumpkin, Charlie Brown. And in that uh, classic um, animated special, Linus looks at Charlie Brown and he says, Charlie Brown, I've, I've learned that there are three things you never discuss. Religion, politics, and the Great Pumpkin. Well, while most of us have probably never had any problem with the Great Pumpkin, we have learned well enough to be very careful in this world who, even among folks we've known a long time, even among uh, folks that are uh, other believers or other family, we've learned to be very careful in these days. What we say about politics and what we say about religion, uh, it can quickly go in a direction that we don't mean it to go. And so I want to say something very clearly before we start this message. For those of you who are in-house, uh, you've seen the title and maybe those online if it's, uh, it's, if it's up there on the screen, but the message is entitled Examining the Excuses for Sexual Sin, and uh, if I was to add one word to that title, the longer I thought on this message, I had set that title earlier in the week, I would say Christian Excuses for Sexual Sin, because this message is not about how can we get some ammo and load up to go out there in the world and tell everybody else how they're doing things wrong and how they should get their act together. In fact, not only is that not my intent, that was not the Apostle Paul's intent. The Apostle Paul was writing this letter to the Corinthians, not the people of Corinth in, in uh, general, but he was in particular writing to the Christians at Corinth. While he certainly would have been concerned for the population of Corinth, uh, just out of a general concern for all mankind, uh, his particular instruction was not about he had a one-man crusade to clean up the morality of the city of Corinth. Rather, he was concerned that the people, the body of Christ at Corinth, would understand that their ethics, that their behavior, that their lifestyle should be different, vastly different from the world around them. And surely enough, as he had been there, he had taught them these things. Of course, we know the Apostle Paul was basically a serial church planter. You know, we know a lot of folks who've, who've started a church and they've stayed there 20 years. They were the founding pastor and they stayed. And Paul wasn't like that. He would found a church and he'd stay there two or three years, a year maybe, two, three. And then he'd go on to start another church somewhere else. And, and they'd get off to a good start. And then he'd start getting some, some letters would catch up to him about some issues going on. And he'd say, whoa, 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 okay, 
Papa Paul needs to do a little intervention here, and, and he couldn't FaceTime them, so he'd write them a letter that we, like we call an epistle, and he would tell them, okay, I, I hear some things are going on, and, and maybe they would write him back, and then he'd say, okay, I see your side of it, but let me give you a different perspective on it. And then he'd write them and, and tell them, now I want to make sure you understand this correctly. And so as we talk about uh, these Christian excuses for sexual sin, I want us to very clearly understand we're looking at ourselves. We're taking a look at the log in our own eye before we're not going out looking for the splinters in others' eye. This isn't so we can elbow each other and think about somebody else who's doing something else and we can get a chuckle and we can think about who else we know and what they've done and how they're sinning. This is all eyes on us. This is examining our own hearts, our own spirits, our own attitudes. And the interesting thing about sexual sins, the teachings of the Bible, even in the Old Testament... Even the Old Testament, but it's expanded in the New Testament, tells us it's not purely physical actions. It goes beyond that to the heart. So even those who may not even have the capability to physically sin in this area can sin in their hearts. And it is something that the Bible tells us that if we're honest, that everybody who ever lived, unless they were just completely born without the right hormones and emotions and parts and everything else to even have a sexual nature, as long as you have one, it is an issue that at some point when you reach that age of physical maturity, at some point in our lives and often for lots of periods in our lives, we will deal with this. So we often fall between, in Christian circles, the ideas of behaving like the Puritans, or at least the way that they were caricaturized, was like pretending that sex didn't exist, or the, the world pretends like it's no big deal, just do whatever. And in fact, God has a lot to say about it in his word. And it's a lot more than in some circles, some Christian circles, where it's like a do or don't, and, and that's it, shut up, don't ask any questions. Paul takes a lot of the things that the Corinthians were saying. Again, these are Christian excuses. These are not the worldly things. The, the, the Corinthians wouldn't have even bothered, the average Corinthian wouldn't have bothered to come up with the things that we're going to address. These were Christian excuses, Christian reasons, Christian rationalizations to do whatever they wanted to do sexually. And so as we approach these, again, this is not with a sense of judgmentalism. This is not with a sense of let's go attack the bad people. Jesus said we all struggle. This is something that all of us, everyone has to look at themselves and has to be aware and awake. But we have to come, instead of giving in to these things, we need to examine them in the light of God's word and his truth and see what his word has to say about it. Now, if you are physically able, I'd ask that you stand in honor and reverence for the reading of God's word. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 12 through 20. You say, I am allowed to do anything, but not everything is good for you. And even though... 
I am allowed to do anything. You must not become a slave to anything. You say, food was made for the stomach and the stomach for food. This is true, though someday God will do away with both of them. But you can't say that our bodies were made for sexual immorality. They were made for the Lord, and the Lord cares about our bodies. And God will raise us up from the dead by his power, just as he raised our Lord from the dead. Don't you realize that your bodies are actually parts of Christ? Should a man take his body, which is part of Christ, and join it to a prostitute? Never! And don't you realize that if a man joins himself to a prostitute, he becomes one body with her? For the scriptures say the two are united into one. But the person who is joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. Run from sexual sin. No other sin so clearly affects the body as this one does. For your own sexual immorality is a sin against your own body. Don't you realize that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who lives in you and was given to you by God? You do not belong to yourself, for God bought you with a high price. So you must honor God with your body. Let's pray. Father God, we take this passage, and God, we just ask that your word would right now be opened up by your spirit. God, that our hearts would be open. Lord, that, that my words would be guarded and just really uh, that you would watch over them. And, and Father, that we'd come to an understanding that's, that's just greater than something that, uh, that, that really simple humanity can accomplish. But Father, that we'd really hear from you today, that our eyes would be open, that our ears would be open that we would all be honest about our own sin and our own um, weakness, our own need for confession, our own need for repentance, our own, our own need for you, for your Holy Spirit's strength to, to live and to walk the way we need to. And God, that none of us would be prideful, Father, but we would all be humble and we would all, uh, Father, be obedient. None of us would think that we are above you or your or your commands, your principles, none of us would think that they don't apply to us, that we are somehow above them. Father, make us more like Jesus, we pray. Help us to be completely receptive. and Don't allow Satan to get in the middle or to gain any victories, Father, but help us to be honest and open where we need to admit where we've failed you. Not to the whole world, but just to ourselves and to you, Father. Let us be honest and repentant and committed to following you. And God, we pray and ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. So I'm going to tell you, you could do a series on this passage. You could do weeks and weeks and weeks. So we're going to kind of condense it, all right? We're going to hit some high points here. We're, t- we're going to talk about four basic Christian excuses for sexual sin. And we're going to hit these four basic excuses, all right? And then we're going to um, just think for just a moment, because we, we got to go quickly here, because somebody's got a pot roast in the oven. I know how that works. 
But we're going to go through these things and think about how do they relate. Has, has life in general really changed all that much? Or are these excuses, are these thought processes, are they really pretty similar to the kind of things we hear today? So, four excuses that, uh, that, we, that Paul was hearing, and I'm kind of summarizing, and then we'll, we'll get the summary statement, and then we'll kind of see the particulars of what Paul said. The first basic excuse was, we're free in Christ. We are free in Christ. That's excuse number one. These Christians were saying, Paul, you talked a whole lot about how we are free in Christ. We are saved. God broke those chains. Now we're free. And I heard about those folks at Galatians and about how they are going into legalism and you're having to preach to them about being free in Christ. Woo, Paul, I love that kind of preaching. Free in Christ. Freedom. Woo, that's great. And so, Paul, I'm really being free. I'm telling you, that temple down the street got some temple prostitutes, and I am exercising this freedom in Christ. I mean, I am enjoying this whole Christian thing. I'm pretty new at it, but I like the idea of freedom, okay? Now, that's basically the summation of their first argument. And they, they put it a couple of ways. They, they have this bumper sticker kind of theology or slogan kind of theology. They said, um, you'll see it's in, in quotes, at least in this translation. Um, it says, you say, I am allowed to do anything. Or in some translations, everything is permissible or everything is acceptable. But Paul comes back, but not everything is good for you. And then another one is, and even though I am allowed to do anything, I must not become a slave to anything. So Paul's basically got um, two, two responses to this type of thinking. He says, you know, first of all, I'm allowed to do anything, which is basically a real stretch, okay? It's really stretching the idea. It's really not the real idea of Christian freedom, but like taking it and trying to bend it and twist it to I can do anything, all right? Paul says, yeah, you can do anything, so to speak. Yeah, you're free in Christ, but not everything is actually good for you. The idea, and, and really the idea when Paul speaks in terms of things being good or beneficial, he's always speaking in terms of what is good for the body of Christ. The idea of Christian thinking is not what's in it for me, but what is in it for God and his people, that is, how can I bless the kingdom of God? How can I bless the body of Christ? But Paul's saying, look, yeah, Christ gives us freedom. Yes, our faith is Christians. It's not looking up a bunch of, oh, let me look at the, the, the law of this and that and the other and the regulation. No, our, our faith is about following Jesus Christ and how the Spirit of God leads us. Yes, that is correct. But that's not a freedom to go do any reckless or, or terrible or dangerous thing that we want to do. All right? Um, this, this, the other thing he answers when he says, he says, I'm not allowed to do anything. He says, I must not become a slave to anything, Paul answers. He's saying basically, yeah, there's freedom, but not freedom to become an addict or an idolater. 
Freedom does not extend to allowing something to have control over you. That's not freedom because that's anti-freedom. When you let your, quote, freedom take you into something that now has control over you, it's undone the freedom. So you go into idolatry, you go into addiction, it's, your freedom is no longer freedom. So that's not freedom at all. Paul says in a whole lot of places, yes, you are free, but not free to sin, because the whole point is, freedom in Christ is freedom from sin. To take it into the physical world that we understand, it's, Paul, Paul might put it something like this. It's as if you are a prisoner in a jail, and God is the governor who calls down and says, hey, I've given you a pardon, and you are to be released. And they walk you outside of the jail, and they give you your clothes, and they give you, you know, whatever you earned for the money that you earned while you were in there incarcerated. And you turn around and you say, oh, I want to go back in. And I say, uh, no, sir, you don't have clearance to come back in here anymore. Uh, but, 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 but I'm free. I want to go back in there. No, there's no reason for you to be in here. That would be ridiculous for you to say, but I'm free. But isn't it sad that we hear stories of people who've been so institutionalized and so used to life in imprisonment that they actually go out and commit crimes because they don't know how to handle freedom on the outside world and they want to be put back into incarceration. I don't understand that, but I'm not making fun of that. I truly pity that because something is very, very wrong. And Paul and the other apostles would tell us that there's something very similar to that going on for a Christian who's trying to get back into sin. He says, you've been set free from that prison of sin. Why in the world, when you've been given your new clothes, you're no longer in the jumpsuit. You've been given a suit suit. You've been given your freedom, your papers that identify you. You are out. You've been pardoned, in fact. You're not, it's not even on your record. Why in the world would you want to go back and be chained up again? Peter puts it really well in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 16. Peter says this, For you are free, yet you are God's slaves. So don't use your freedom as an excuse to do evil. In other words, Peter says, guess what? You really have a new allegiance. Yes, you're free from sin, but now... When you called on the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord Jesus Christ, you said, oh, you're my master now. He is the one that you're to serve. You gave up your service to sin and self. You, you called on the Lord Jesus Christ. You accepted a new master in your life. Now, you didn't earn it, work for it. You didn't get saved because you made a bunch of promises or commitments or did a bunch of this and that and the other. It was faith and faith alone. You were just received that free gift, okay? But when you did that, that free gift included a new Lord, a new master for your life. 
And Peter says, guess what? (laughs) Don't go back to the old one. Don't go back to sin. So this first excuse of, hey, hey, we're free in Christ. We should be able to sin. Paul says, no, that excuse is pretty lame. Christian freedom is not freedom to sin. Well, the second excuse that this, uh, that this, these Corinthian Christians uh, put out there was, if I was to paraphrase it, I'd say, my desires are natural. My sexual desires, the things I want to do, they're natural. This is the way I am. And here's kind of here's how their argument worked. In verse 13, it says, You say, so here's Paul about to quote them and their argument. You say, food was made for the stomach and stomach for food. Okay? Now, this, you're kind of like, well, what does that have to do with anything? We'll get to it. But he's like, they're making an analogy. They're making a comparison. Our food, our, our stomachs are made to eat food, and food is made to be eaten by our stomachs or consumed by our stomachs. We can all get on that same page. That's generally logical. I mean, I'm sure you could point out some flaw in there somewhere if you're, you know, have a lot of technicalities and real good at logic, but food, stomach go hand in hand. All right, so they, they kind of throw that out there. Okay, very logical. Well, what's not said, but what they, what they jump from, what you read between the lines, their argument is, okay, food for the stomach, stomach for food. In other words, guess what God gave us besides stomach? He gave us sexual parts and sexual desires. So therefore, hey, there's things out there in the world that will fulfill those desires and that will connect with and work with those parts he gave us. So, hey, you know, it's just natural, just as natural as me getting hungry and going out and eating some bread. And, you know, that's not sinful. See, back then, none of them would be like, ooh, that's sin. You ate carbs. They couldn't imagine that in that day. They would never think of that being sinful. Food was just good and natural. They didn't have this kind of crazy mentality we do nowadays about certain sins, foods being sinful. They're like, everybody knows food, stomach, stomach, food. And they said, well, the same principle applies. You know, other part of the body Other things you do with that part of the body. Come on. How simple this can be. Again, it's bumper sticker theology. It's slogan theology. It just sounds simple. It just sounds like it should just work. It sounds like it should be so right. Well, Paul does does this. He follows up about the food for the stomach and stomach for food. It says, this is true, just the first part of the statement, that is, food for the stomach and stomach for food, though someday God will do away with both of them. Okay, so Paul's saying it is true that God in his design, he made the food and he made the stomach and and that they work together. But Paul says, guess what? Just because you say it's natural, God was the one that created that nature. And guess what? One day he's going to say, mm-mm. Nope, I'm tired of that. I'm going to destroy it. I'm going to do a new creation. I'm going to put an end to it. And it's going to be all over with. 
And there's going to be new bodies, and there's going to be a new heaven and a new earth. The whole idea is what they have done is basically said, you know, we know God says this, but nature seems to say this. And we like what nature seems to say to us as long as we put it as an argument for doing what we want to do morally or sexually. So we're going to put this above God's word and above his statements, okay? And what Paul is saying is, no, God is above nature. God created nature, and one day God is going to end nature as we know it. One day, all of the physical laws of nature as we know them, that currently operate. They began at a certain point in time, and one point in time, they're going to end. Because God creates a new heaven and a new earth, and it will have a whole new set of laws and natural realities. And so God's authority is higher than whatever we see as nature's authority. So, that's number two. Number three argument. By the way, you're starting to see how these 2,000-year-old arguments, have you noticed any similarity to the same arguments and logic and thinking that we use or that is heard today? Number three, nobody's getting hurt. Here's the third argument. Argument. Here's the third slogan. Here's the third excuse that the Christians at Corinth are using to say, you know, Paul, I know you described a certain sort of behavior, but, you know. And, and, and their third excuse is, nobody's getting hurt. You know, we're at a place in this world where... Um, in the one hand, there's, there, is, uh, there are good things that happen in this world. You know, there's advances. There are, there are certain things where certain diseases are met with, you know, uh, we're, we're better able to take care of certain needs for people. And, and those are good things. And, and there's advancements that, that help people. And, and there's even at times there are, there are advancements overall in certain societies or cultures. Like, for instance, we have come, or at least many people have come, to a greater understanding that, uh, hey, you know, you don't force people into sexual relationships. And I'd say that's progress. <laughs> that's a good thing that society says, hey, that's an important thing, that someone needs to be consenting in a sexual relationship. That's important. But on the other hand, we've also gotten to this place in society where we've set that as kind of the, the bedrock for many people. And we've said, oh, two consenting adults. That, some people might not even use that number, but consenting adults. Okay. And then said, basically, if that's, that's it, then anything goes. And often this line, nobody's getting hurt, will go along with it. And so Paul begins to talk about um, these things. 
Let me just continue um, going on, and this, this is just a follow-up of this uh, idea about God's design for our bodies. He says, but you can't say that our bodies were made for sexual immorality. They were made for the Lord, so there's purpose in God's design. And the Lord cares about our bodies. And God will raise us from the dead by his power, just as he raised the Lord from the dead. Verse 15 of Corinthians 6. Don't you realize that your bodies are actually parts of Christ? Should a man take his body, which is part of Christ, and join it to a prostitute? Never. And don't you realize that if a man joins himself to a prostitute, he becomes one body with her. For the scriptures say the two are joined into one. But the person who is joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. Now there's a lot of stuff there. There's a lot of, uh, of, of heavy, heavy theology and thinking But the basic idea, when Paul's answering their their excuse of nobody's getting hurt, his number one response is, you're not considering what this is doing to God. You're not considering the effect that your decision, your disobedience is having on your Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Because when you received Christ, you became connected with him in spirit. You became unified with him. You became one with Christ. And not only that, spiritually you're one with Christ. You are part of the body of Christ. And he connects this to the theology that goes all the way back to Genesis. Every time God, um, the the doctrine of marriage, or not every time, but I'm going to say throughout Scripture many times, The doctrine of marriage is addressed, and it goes back to that foundational teaching in Genesis, where the Lord teaches about the man and the woman, you know, leaving father and mother, coming together and being one flesh. And throughout Scripture, over and over, that's repeated. And the idea is that when a man and woman come together in God's design in marriage, it is more than just a hookup. It is more than just a physical activity. Is it pleasurable? Is it a physical act? Yes, but it is far beyond that. God, through his word, is telling us that there is something going on that is higher, grander, and more special, and more significant than we might suspect. There is something special called a one flesh relationship going on there. This is why sex is never casual. That that terminology in our society decades ago came around with the idea of, hey, it's not such a big deal. You can just do this, do that, friends with benefits. All these other ideas came around and it all came with the idea that you as a person what you do with your body and specifically with the parts of the body that were created for procreation, it's no big deal. 
What if our society, our society follows up and encourages that idea? It's nothing. What do they call those things? What do people often refer? Oh, it's your junk. Why do they say that? Because it refers to the idea of just throw it away, give it away. It's not a big deal. All of this thinking tells us that it's nothing special. Get it out of the tells young people get it out of the way so you won't be made fun of, you won't be called names. All of this stuff in our society is constantly uh, repeating the lie that it's just no big deal. We're just like our cousins in the animal kingdom. We have pre-programmed ideas, and you know we just can't really help but follow them. And God's word tells us differently. That male and female, he created them in the image of God. That there is something different about us. That we are not just animals. That we have been given a spirit. That there is something higher and grander in us. And that he has created something very special called a one flesh relationship. And Paul says... Can you imagine taking this thing that is holy and precious and that God meant to be only in a special husband and wife relationship and you take it and join it with a prostitute? In other words, Paul says, You who are intimately connected with Christ because Christ dwells within you, you're going to drag Jesus into the prostitution house? Is that really what you're going to do, Corinthians? You see, we often look at Scripture and people have this idea that, oh, you know, back in those days, they don't even know how we live. They were... They were all buttoned up. They were all repressed. They didn't really know about free sexuality like we in our advanced progressive society know these days. Oh, no, 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 no. Oh, the Corinthians knew all about everything. They know probably more things than we could ever know. The Corinthians were known in the ancient Roman world, which was already very completely wild. They were known as wild among the wild. To be called a Corinthian girl, basically, that was like saying a bad word about her, okay? They had that much reputation. And while we have so-called progressive politicians nowadays pushing for legalization of prostitution, uh, they didn't have to push for it in Corinth. It was already legal. In fact, it was spiritual. There were temple prostitutes. And so folks would say, hey, I'm doing a good thing. I'm worshiping. I'm helping someone making a living. Those folks today who say sex work is work and it should be legalized, the Corinthians would say amen to that. And and they were all progressive. They were all on board with all the things that the the furthest left people in society would say is okay today. So don't think you're more progressive than the Corinthians from 2,000 years ago or that you can out-liberal them. You can't. Paul knew exactly what was going on in these societies, okay? He knew what people were dealing with. And Paul said, look, you're dragging your Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, into this. Every time 
you drag yourself into sin and you say, hey, it's only me. I'm not hurting anybody. First of all, you're dragging him into it. Then he has a second response to the whole, I'm not hurting anybody excuse. You go down a little further. Verse 18, run from sexual sin. No other sin so clearly affects the body as this one does. For sexual immorality is a sin against your own body. Don't you realize that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who lives in you and was given to you by God? We won't spend a lot of time on this one, but to say... Paul says here that sexual sin is a sin against yourself in a very unique way. Even scholars disagree exactly on what he was trying to get at here. Because we know there are other ways of harming yourself. I mean, there's self-harm that people do physically with cutting. There's self-harm in the forms of addictions and you know, substance abuse and things like that. So, and I could take the time I want to lay out some theories of what people think he was exactly getting at. But the point is this Paul made a very special point that said, when you commit sexual adultery or sexual sin, you are committing a sin against your body in a very unique and powerful way that is distinguishable from any other sin. Sexual sin, Paul is saying, is not worse than other sins because I can say, oh, it's worse than someone being a murderer. Oh, it's worse than someone being a thief. Oh, it's worse than someone being a gossiper. Paul says sexual sin is worse because it hurts you worse. It affects you in a a way that no other sin does. And my personal take on it is that it has a way of getting between you and God. Because he goes right into saying your body is a temple of the Lord. And I believe that while all sin messes up our fellowship with God as believers, I believe that sexual sin messes up our ability to connect with God and relate to him in a greater way than other sins do. And that is what is so harmful to the believer. So hear me clearly when I say, I'm not uh, trying to call out people and say you're worse and terrible and, and, and more messed up than anyone else if your sin of the choice happens to be a sexual sin. I am saying I have compassion and I'm saying I want you to understand the seriousness of the sin is that it has a way of affecting your relationship with God. And again, I'm not saying, oh, you must be an unbeliever going to hell if you have a sexual sin. Paul is talking to believers who have convinced themselves that some little excuse that they've made up in their mind for their sexual sin, that that has made it okay for them to still be a church-going, believing Christian who loves the Lord, and yet I'm just doing this little thing on the side as well. 
Paul says, no, 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 you don't even realize how bad you're messing up you're the most important relationship in your life, and that is your ongoing fellowship and friendship and love relationship with the God of the universe who sent his son to die for you. Don't mess that up. So let's sum it up. Let's sum it up. Final argument here. It's my body. Final excuse. It's my body, Paul. You know, I mean, I know I'm, you know, I know I believe in Jesus. I trust him and everything, but it's my body. Paul's answer. Don't you realize that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who lives in you and was given to you by God? You do not belong to yourself for God bought you with a high price. And the Bible tells us in many other places that that price was the precious blood of Jesus Christ. God not only created you, so he owned you in the first place, but then he redeemed you. As you wandered from him in sin and rebellion, he bought you back. His own son paid the price for every sin you have and ever would commit. And on the cross, he shed his blood for you. And so you, my brothers and sisters in Christ, you are doubly his. And Paul says you are bought at a price. You are his. Honor God with your body. Now we could keep on all day long. And we could even go for a number of weeks. Coming up with other excuses, variations on the theme. And they'd all be just little, like I said, variations. And they'd all be excuses. And I don't mean they'd all be trivial. Some people would say them just as a ha-ha-ha excuse. Other people really believe them and have bought into them. But ultimately, they're all ways of saying, whether you say them cynically or whether you say them in full belief, they're all ways of saying God's rules don't apply to me. Pastor Tim, I know God wants me to be happy. When I hear that in my office in counseling, I know what's about to follow is I'm about to do something that means God's rules don't apply to me. I've heard that statement literally scores, if not hundreds of times, over the years as a pastor. People who I do not doubt are true Christians and yet they have decided that they're going to do what they want to do regardless of what God's word says. And they preface it by saying, I know God wants to me, me to be happy. God has made his word clear. It does not mean he is uncompassionate. It does not mean that you and I are to be uncompassionate. But his word is clear because he knows where the landmines are. And he knows what is best for us. This message, again, is not for us to go out and tell other people how messed up they are or what they should get straight. This message is for us to all examine ourselves and where we are and where we will be. Two things, if you remember nothing else. Honor God with your body. And by the way, body here is all-inclusive and it includes your mind. 
Because a lot of us are looking, listening, and thinking in ways that we've justified because we think, well, I'm not actually doing this. But you're looking, watching, thinking, obsessing. And God wants control of your mind as part of your body as well. Honor God with your body. And number two, he said, run from sexual sin. Other translations say flee from sexual immorality. Don't even play around with it. When I was a youth minister, and that's been a long time now, but when I was a youth minister, I often got the question, how far can I go? What's the line? Adults might have the question, well, what's friendly and what's flirting? You know, it doesn't matter what age we are. We have this, really, it's a sinful nature that says, how far can I push the line? How close to the fire can I get? How much can I toy with the danger and yet stay safe? And the Bible never answers that question because it's the wrong question. The Bible's word is not how close can you get, but how far away can you stay? Like Joseph, who ran from Potiphar's wife, who said, I'm getting out of town. I'm staying as far as I can away from that temptation. As Christians, we should never be saying, where's the line? Because I want to get as close as I possibly can and look over the edge. But rather, we should say, when I see a temptation, when I see something reaching out to me, when I notice someone's flirting with me, when I notice a weakness... I'm not going to be big and bad and say, I'm super Christian and I'm sure I can, I, I, I know I won't give in to this so I can stand right next to the cliff. But we need to say, God, I am weak. I am weak and I need you to protect me. And, and first of all, help me to have sense to, to stay far away. And hopefully you've got a friend of the same sex who you can, you know, be honest with and say, I need you to be Pray for me and, and hold me accountable. And, and, and I'm just going to stay far, far away from that. Don't fool yourself. Because the moment we say that I'm strong, the devil starts to get a foothold and get ready to take us out. There's excuses. And I'm going to tell you, God has called us to be people of purity, but guess what? Thank God he is a God of grace, and thank God he is a God of mercy. Because every single one of us, this is not a matter where all of a sudden, boom, 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 you know, there's a, a line between the guilty and the innocent in this congregation. Guess what? We're all guilty. We've all messed up. Mentally, physically, however you want to put it, all of us are in need of God's grace, okay? We all have to come to God for mercy. We have to admit our past failures. We have to come to him and, and, and fess up. And we have to lean on him for his spirit's power and control and humbly ask him, God, help me to walk in the right path. And God, help me to be honest with myself about those temptations. And I'm going to get stay far, far away from them when I see them coming.
Let's pray. Father God, it is easy, easy, easy for us to either fall right into what the world is saying about your grand plan of our design, which includes our sexuality, or to be completely silent about it in your church and in our families. But God, you're not silent about it. You speak and you speak clearly and you don't stutter. Lord God, the passage we've looked at today, it's one of many. Father, there are those right now who are in places, mentally, physically, relationally, that they don't need to be. And God, they're making excuses. And Father, I pray for the gift of repentance, that their hearts would change, their minds would change, and their actions would follow. Father, there's, there's some that, um, Father, while there's some of us that are already in that, Father, there's also some of us who are contemplating, that are on the edge, And about to fall. And Father, I pray, God, that you would send that powerful spirit of repentance to turn us away. God, I pray that no one here today would leave this place with a a heart of legalism, of judgment towards others. But we would all apply this towards ourselves. Father, I pray that none of us would blow this off and think that that we're immune or that we're above this or beyond it somehow because of our age, because of our maturity, because of our life experience. And Father God, let our light shine. Let our love, not our seeking after our own pleasure and fulfillment, but Lord, let our true love for others, for serving and for living as Christ lived, serving others. May that be what shines to a very darkened world. And may the world see and know us by our love for one another. And may it give us a place to voice the gospel that leads to eternal life. Be with us all now, Father, as we do business with you. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.